0: This is the Bigger Pockets podcast, show eight twenty four.
1: I still own those first two house hacks because I didn't know about the two year owner occupant tax benefit at that time, and I was learning the value add, and I learned about the two year owner occup where you live in a house the last two or five years, and if you're single, you can take up two hundred fifty thousand tax free. So after that, I started just finding the best deal I could find and live in it for the two years and add as much value as I could, and I started buying rentals um is a little over 1.9 million dollars of tax free income that I've got through all of my house hacks.
0: What's going on everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast and welcome to the sharpest real estate show in the west. Today I'm joined by my co-host, the Sundance Kid himself. Rob Abasolo. Rob, how are you? Howdy, partner. How you doing? I'm doing all right now. Now, if you're new to this show and you came here looking for real estate content, but found yourself in a Western, don't worry. You are in the right place. Every week we bring you stories, how tos, and answers that you need to make smart real estate decisions now in the current market. And this week we're having a little bit of fun with it. We've got Jason Lewis, the Lone Ranger of real estate. Rob, what's the most valuable thing from this episode that investors can take away from?
2: Oh man, we're going to talk about things—the importance of networking, the importance of building relationships. There are so many lead sources in our life that we are not tapping that are perfectly capable of landing deals across our desk every single day. And these are people that we interact with every single day. We are going to talk about the power. Of garage sales. We get into some pretty good stuff here.
0: Yes, we do. And a lot of creativity as well. This is a very cool guest who's taken an approach to real estate that's different than a lot of other people, but I think it's a good one. Before we get into it with Jason, today's quick tip is very simple. Ask yourself, am I running to something or running away from something? They can both be motivators. Positive reinforcement is when you want something. I want a Lamborghini. I want money. I want a vacation. And that's good. But negative reinforcement is even more powerful. That's the removal of adverse stimuli. So it's more powerful if you want to come in outside from the rain than if you just want ice cream for dessert. Jason talks about how in his life he was running away from pain that he experienced in childhood, and it's been a great motivator to keep him grounded, focused, and defensive-minded while building his portfolio. I thought it was a wonderful perspective, and I'm happy for
3: everyone to get to hear it soon. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages, until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost, Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Passive income
2: without the property headache? It's possible. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally All right, it's high noon when we're about to get into this here duel. So let's get into it. Jason Lewis, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. How are you today?
1: Hey, thanks guys. Excited to finally be on the the episode. It's been long with the journey of the Bigger Pockets since back in 2015, so it's kind of interesting and fun to have it now come full circle and actually be a be a guest. On the podcast,
0: little background for listeners: Jason has a twenty-five million dollar real estate portfolio, has been investing for seventeen years, and has done over five hundred deals. As a fun fact, Jason, I understand your dad sold a bull to John Wayne. I need to hear this story.
1: Hey, uh, that's kind of the, that was his claim claim to fame back in the day. John Wayne was a Hereford cattle, which Herefords is a brand breed of. Cattle. John Wayne was uh, a big fan. He had the bar. I think it's twenty six Bar Ranch in Arizona. Big Hereford guy. And uh, my dad, at one point back in the day, I think maybe when I was still a twinkle in his eye, uh, had sold a bull to to John Wayne, and uh, that was kind of his his claim to fame. So, as a as a good old rancher.
2: Whatever happened to the to, to the bull? Did we ever find out? Yeah, it's I'm 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 guessing that was.
1: Maybe after it had its run of of uh getting to control the the ladies in the field, uh he, he probably became McDonald's, sadly.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I never thought about that. Can you eat do you eat bull? Or is it always cow? Is it all beef the same? Yeah, it's uh you know, it's
1: interesting fact that like McDonald's buys a lot of their meat is uh dairy cattle after they quit Um, producing milk and their past, their longevity, that is where most of your post-milk production goes to a Big Mac.
0: Wow. Well, that is the fact of the day. So you literally milk it for all it's worth, and then it turns into McDonald's. (laughs) That must be where it comes from, the phrase. So in honor of John Wayne's genre, the spaghetti western, we're going to walk through your story today in three parts, the good, the bad, and the ugly which, if you don't know, is an iconic Western movie from 1966. In fact, I don't know if anyone is able to say the good and the bad without also adding in the ugly. It's kind of a knee-jerk response at a certain point. So let's start with the bad. I understand that your family had some hard times growing up on a farm in Kansas. Uh, this is also how Superman was originated. So maybe there's something to your $25 million portfolio and that. Was there a low point in that time that shaped you?
1: Yeah, I had a, I had a boulder on my shoulder since I was a kid. Still do, as uh, say, people say they had a chip on their shoulder. I grew up with a boulder with the fact that I thought I'd take over the family, you know, farm, ranch, third generation that my grandpa had started back in the day. Um, you know, we had, we'd had some good success, but ultimately my, my dad was an amazing cattleman. We had 800 head hog operation. Farmed ranch, you know, thousands of acres. And sadly, he was, um, not the best business guy. He, he was a, a more of the doer and he was great at that. And it was before technology and, and education and YouTube where you could look up stuff. So back in the day, um, there were some just hard times in the farming industry, which there's, it's a very cyclical business. And, um, the bank came knocking on the door when, when I was a kid and said, we want it back. Um, he had essentially started doing some feedlots, which again, I'll, I'll, uh, interesting fact about cattle kind of is that feedlots are where you put in a ton of cattle into a very small area and you can scale them. And that's how I give that analogy in real estate. It's, it's when people started building multifamily. It used to be a single house, single area. You could only do one in an area, kind of like running cattle in a big open pasture. But now they do feed lots. They do commercial farming for pigs, hogs, um, chickens. So anyway, he went into that and and why my real estate career was shaped before I knew it was he went, he leveraged the farm to build that multifamily of the cattle industry and essentially a COVID type of event hit where it tanked cattle prices. And when you're fully leveraged, um, there isn't much you can do to escape that. So um, that's essentially the bank came calling and and uh, we kind of moved to town as, and lost the farm, as they say.
2: That's crazy. So you grew up thinking... <clears throat> You know, your whole life, your trajectory, you were effectively gonna be like a like a farmer. This was your trajectory. Did you know that your that that your dad had over leveraged? Did you understand the concept of leverage at this time? Or is it really only in retrospect that you kind of realized what happened?
1: Yeah, it's retrospect. It was uh, you know, at that time I was third grade and we had to go, we had a pond that we were gonna build our forever home, you know, on and we had like a little play set over there and like some stuff. And we had to like go get that, you know, and kind of like that, go, go move to town. Um, and that's when that boulder went on. Um, you know, at the time it was very, um, exotic, I guess you could say, or, or sexy that the farming. Cause I was a kid. I didn't have to actually do a lot of the hard work. I just, I was watching Dukes of Hazard and cool John Wayne movies. And, and it was just something that, I just thought I would do and it was cool and fun. You know, you're looking up to your grandpa and you want to do what he did. Um, so when that kind of got taken away, um, but luckily I, I got to see from being a farm kid, um, and even working on farms after and stuff, I just had that entrepreneurial farmer mindset because farmers are entrepreneurs and there's just it nowadays it's become like everything else, corporate farming, but a little less entrepreneurial, but, um, historically they were. The first entrepreneurs, you know, you got land and you had to make a living off of it. There was, you, you make or break, you either feed your family and produce an income or you literally don't survive.
2: Okay. So what were some of those lessons? Because obviously you went through a lot. I'm sure that was a very significant impact on your life. What was something that came out of that? It's bootstraps.
1: Literally what I tell people, it's bootstraps. At the end of the day, my style and how I go about my business, my personal life. My mindset um, is that every day you pull up your bootstraps and you probably literally and figuratively as a farm person, you're going to deal with, you know, Um, at some point throughout the day, throughout the week, you're going to deal with hard times. You're going to deal with stuff you don't want to deal with. Um, And as the saying goes, you pull up your bootstraps and just every day you go out there and do everything you can. And hopefully at the end of the day when you're exhausted and you get back home and, you know, take those boots off, you've added a little value. And then hopefully kind of when you kick the bucket, when you're older, you've, you made something better than when you started. So it's that mentality of just pulling them up, getting out there, getting in the thick of it, um, and just keep going.
2: I mean, I'm sure that that also brings a lot of sacrifice too, right? the the concept of pulling yourself up by the bootstrap is sort of the mantra of every entrepreneur, but with that mindset and with that uh, that lifestyle, I'm sure a lot of sacrifice comes comes from that too. So were there any sacrifices that you made, you know, having to live out this this lifestyle and mentality? Oh, for sure.
1: I mean it's it's there's a pro yin and yang, pro and con to everything and, and that mentality of kind of that Lone ranger, I'll just deal with it. I'll do it myself. I'll figure it out. Um, and, and making sure that the, with that boulder on my shoulder, that I did not go bankrupt when I had a, you know, a goal as a young kid in, in junior high, high school, I wanted a net worth of a hundred grand. And this is all arbitrary. I grew up in a town of 1800. There was only two stories was a grain elevator and the courthouse. So I had no idea about like true wealth and money and stuff, but it was just kind of that inherent nature. I just. I wanted a hundred thousand in net worth at 18. I wanted a million in net worth by 30. And I wanted to be financially retirable by 35. And financial retirable to me was not bankruptible because my parents had me at 35. So I thought that was like forever away. I thought 35 was like a hundred years old when you're in junior high. And, um, so I said, okay, they had me at 35. My dad went bankrupt. It caused, you know, some family tension divorce essentially, you know, kind of happened throughout that, you know, financial, um, aspect. And I said, I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to run away from something versus run towards something. And I think a lot of people run towards a a Lamborghini, a vacation home, a plane, uh, whatever that might uh, be. I always have, and probably always will, in a messed up way, run away from something, which is that event happening, which was, um, you know, bankrupt moving, losing the farm, as they say. So I've sacrificed. I mean, it's just, I everything I did was like, will this event get me further away from bankruptcy event that could happen in my life or closer to it? So a $2 soda, you know, Coke at, uh, at lunch, that's $2 further away from bankruptcy or closer to if I spent it or didn't. So I, I never used to, and I treat myself now to iced tea on occasion, but I still have that mindset. So that's a sacrifice. I mean, some, and it's just work wise friends,
0: um, I can help you with that, Jason. If you get an iced tea, but you drink six refills, you just divide the $3 by six. It's only 50 cents per iced tea. You'll feel a lot better about it. I like it.
2: I can add on to that. If you if you get water and you ask for a little plate of lemons and some sweet and low, you can actually make your own lemonade in front of everybody at the table. You can even give them some.
1: All right. right, we'll I have to toss into that. It's I'm not a Starbucks because $4 drinks is, is still out of that, that realm, but... If you get an iced tea uh, or a hot tea coffee at Starbucks and you have the app, it's free refills. So I'll have my meetings there and I'll make sure I drink my iced tea and then get my to-go one. And it's normally 50 cents if you don't have the app, but it's free. So who knows? They'll probably change it.
0: That's why people tune into this podcast. Real estate's really expensive, everybody, but you can still save money. Rob, you should start buying avocados and taking them with you to chipotle so when they say guac is extra you're like not for me lady not for me
1: so i have to test this i saw you know when those tiktok like life hacks which i'm addicted to every one of them is that you put avocados in water and they last like perfectly right for like ever if you just put them in a bowl of water and
0: i'm like mm,
1: that can't work but most of them end up those hacks do work so i was like i gotta try that sometime so
0: You know, you also need to add lemon to avocados to stop them from going bad, which means you can get the free lemon from the restaurant, add it to your avocado, take home some water. You could basically live for free if you listen to this podcast long enough.
1: Literally, that is my goal. Like, and to sum up is like, is I try and hack, you know, almost everything from my house to my cars, to planes, to vacation house, to restaurants, to whatever it's, uh, Um, it's, it's a weird, weird little thing that came from that. Now I don't need to do that, but I'm just addicted to it. So, uh, so if you guys have any more of those, uh, those hacks, I would,
0: yeah, I'll share you the big Mac hack. I learned this from Kevin in the office. You see, you go to McDonald's every day and you order a big Mac, but you take one of the layers of the big Mac out of the burger. And at the end of the week, you add them all together and voila, free big Mac. (laughs)
2: I love it. I love, Well, listen, if anybody at home has a life hack, please leave a comment of your favorite life hack in the YouTube comments. And we will pin our
0: favorite one to the top. There you go. All right. Now, Jason, I understand that you took out a bank loan at seven years old. I need to hear about this.
1: Yeah, as a farm kid, you do 4-H. That's uh, if anyone's kind of grew up in a small town or even... I've heard of 4-H, but no one told me what the 4-Hs are. Does anyone know? Man, I knew right when I said 4-H, I knew that you guys were going to ask what that meant. And my 4-H leaders, my 4-H leaders were... And my mom probably will slap me if any of them will ever would listen to this. Because you literally have to say it at like every 4-H, you know, as a kid. It's like the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, The four H's, four H's is, is the four leaf clover and it's heart, like health, hand
0: something. Uh, so man, I literally like Hershey's maybe our producer has come through in the clutch to save you head, heart, hands and health. I was guessing when I said hands, I had no idea. Yeah. Hands is the helping part
1: is that you volunteer, you help others, um, I do remember that the like hands part
0: because that's the, a lot of it is you know volunteering and helping and and doing good. My mom was in 4-H. Shout out to my mom who never told me what the 4-H stood for, but apparently that was like a pretty big thing, like Boy Scouts or uh, Rainbow Girls, I believe they were called. So you're in 4-H, and somehow this allows a bank to give a seven year old a loan. At seven, you can start showing animals uh, and anything. I mean, if you have photo
1: or whatever at the county fair. Um, you can start showing animals at seven. So I was counting literally the, the days up to when I'm my seventh birthday, just so I could start showing animals. So, um, I bought my four baby pigs. Um, and you don't, we raised hogs, but you know, these are show hogs. So you got to go to like show hog farm and I'm middle of Kansas drove up there and took a trailer and I picked out my four hogs that were going to be the grand champion of the Harper County Fair. Um, bought four of them and then you show them. I actually ended up winning grand champion hog and you end up getting to sell and they still do it here in Douglas County and Jeffco and places. They'll still have um, auctions and, and uh, people buy the hog mainly it's, it's people in the um, ag industry banks and John Deere dealers and stuff um, to support kids and, I sold my four hogs and I netted a little over $2,334 that year. And um I went down to the bank after end of August when the county fair was and I got my check and paid Jerry Turner back for the four hogs that I'd bought. And my mom uh made me put the you know twenty three hundred dollars in profit into a bank account for my um college. And I think I maybe was able to buy some like bubble gum and baseball cards or something like that, and then the rest went into college fun and and kept kept doing it every year and did it till I was eighteen.
0: So the hog hacking, I
1: was, I was hog hacking exactly.
2: So you sold four hogs, four h's, if you will. Uh, when when people buy, I've always wondered this: when people buy the hogs or the cattle or whatever. Are they buying them to
1: eat them or? That's a very good question. I got excited. I said, yeah, before we even started, cause I was like, oh man, I'm, you know, actually someone who asked a, a, a redneck question like that is, I get excited. So, um, at least in ours is you essentially buy it. Um, but you're just kind of paying a premium, um, to that person and you're writing a check. Um, you have the option, at least in Harbor County to then buy the hog. Um, if you want to have it processed and then a processor will come and pick up the hogs that people actually buy, but all of the other hogs are loaded up on a big semi and you get your check from the, um,
0: the, the meat processor, the packing plant that buys all the, all the animals. Rob is very concerned with the fate of every animal. (laughs) You, He needs the story. It's tough, man. I'll tell you like, um, it's. It's real tough. Cause
1: you get close to them, right? Oh, for sure. It's, and hogs, you know, not so much, but the cattle, you literally, you know, you walk them every day on a leash, like a, like a pet dog. And then does it have a name? Ah, some, I, I didn't ever allow, I started to, I kind of in my head, but I never, I never really called. Um, but, uh, yeah, I had one four, four H steer that, um, broke my, dad's, um, hand and then ran my grandpa over. So it was the one that I did not, we, it did not take it to the fair cause he was never, would never break. Um, but he went to the, the local meat packing plant and, uh, it was, um, homemade meat after, but, um, that was the one that I was, that I was not sad to see. So I'll probably going to get a lot of hate messages after sharing that story, but
2: Jason, so like you, you get this loan from the bank, obviously you pay it back, but You're seven years old. Are they billing you for this? Are you on auto draft, auto payment? Like, how did that work?
1: Yeah. Legally, you can't sign any legally binding contract till 18, um, you know, in the US. So you can't get a credit card. You can't get a bank, um, uh, account. So I, but you can co sign. So I had my own bank account, Jerry Turner. I walked in. He had George Bush. If anyone kind of remembers old, you know, old school, like, cowboy dress pants they're like stretchy and shiny he wore those he looked like kind of like good old george bush did back in the day um and uh he set me down and gave me the whole speech you know of financial and being smart and farm kid and all that so um my mom co-signed so it was under my name but she was legally binded that if i ended up losing those four hogs and or they got eaten by coyotes or something she would been on the hook so legally
0: So you learned capitalism at a super young age. You learned the fear of we could lose everything at a young age. And then you learned there's a benefit to growing something. I mean, you literally raised animals from when they were small, which is sort of like buying a property and fixing it up over time and then selling it for more. And you got exposed to this cycle of capitalism where if you add value to things, you can make money. I understand that you made $243 in this and in today's money that's five thousand seven hundred and seventy-seven dollars. Can you can you explain that?
1: A little over twenty
0: four hundred. Twenty
1: I think I look back, I remember, you know, asking what that was. Cause I don't remember it's seven. And then I just kind of looking back on bank stuff when I got to be junior high and it was 2,400
0: and I think $32. Okay. So you made $2,400 selling the hogs and in today's money, that's about $5,700.
1: Yeah. I, I put that in a calculator a while back, just curiosity when I was chatting with people and they're like, well, you did what at seven. And I was like, wonder what that buying power today
0: would be like if what seven-year-old. I mean, imagine a seven-year-old making 5,800 bucks. Yeah. That's a lot of money. And you're like, I bought some bubblegum and a baseball card. Like you could have bought a car.
1: Yeah. Literally I mean, back then, yeah, you, you I bought my first truck at thirteen and I paid fifty-five. So literally it paid for my nineteen eighty eight Chevy
2: stepside. So Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door.
4: Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Want to dive deep into
2: commercial real estate, entrepreneurship, leadership, and the economy? Tune into the Walker webcast hosted by the CEO of Walker & Dunlop.
0: All right, now, moving into the good of your story here, out of the bad. At some point, you found real estate investing, and over the last 17 years, you've worked with a ton of real estate strategies and asset types. Here's a quick and very impressive list for the listeners. Fix and flips, house hack, burr, new build, high-end luxury, mobile home parks, land, including hunting land and camping land, Oil and gas leases, small commercial, short-term rentals. You've also brokered residential and commercial deals yourself and have done pretty much everything short of big commercial. How the heck did you get into all these different asset classes?
1: And again, well, it's real estate related show. So I don't want to want to kind of maybe get away from all the hogs and the farming in case people are uh, not into that or or that might not be a fan of them, vegans and such, which I fully understand and respect. But um, how that came about was um, I owned a auto motorcycle dealership. I started when I was in high school and I was slinging motorcycles. I had a full license. I had a shop truck trailers, a whole, whole nine yards, um, in high school. And I was doing that in college and I got, I was on the KU water ski club team. Yes, there is such a thing as a water ski club team. We literally every afternoon went and water skied with fit college girls and bikinis. It was, it was, uh, um, I joked around. It was, it was better than the football team having to wrestle around a hot, sweaty dudes. So, um, and the guy who started the club team 4 KU in the seventies was a commercial real estate guy in Kansas city. And I got introduced to him and he's like, you got to quit slinging these like $2,500 deals. You got to start slinging the you know commercial. So I didn't go home over Christmas break my sophomore year. And I went, drove in every day to Kansas city and got licensed and um, uh, interned for him slinging office space in college. And then that's what I did right out of college after I did an eight month round solo around the world trip came back to Kansas city and I got um, all three of the big commercial firms were recruiting me there. Went with CB Richard Ellis world's largest commercial real estate firm and said, I'm going to grind eight to five Monday to Friday. And I'm going to pay myself 1500 bucks a month to live on. I'm going to house hack and I'm going to put everything else into buying real estate to essentially replace the farm ground that my dad lost. Cause I still had that boulder on my shoulder. So, and I needed a net worth a million bucks by 30. So, and I had a short window to to do that.
0: So. So in one word how would you describe your overall strategy? Opportunistic
1: without a doubt. That's it. I mean ever since I was 7 years old, opportunistic is you, you have a, a opportunity in front of you and you you got to figure out a way to add value. So opportunistic value add. That's it.
2: Yeah, and so like a lot of investors, I know you used house hacking as a strategy early on, but that's not where it ended. So can you tell us about your first and most recent house hack? I've house hacked every
1: house I've ever lived in. There was a short period when I moved to Denver. Um, I was strategically in Kansas City. I wanted to put my four years, had a certain goal to hit there. And then I was moving out and starting my own firm in, in, in Denver. So there's a short window where I, I wasn't living in one of my kind of house hacks. But even that situation, the rental deal was kind of a house hack. But every year since '06, i I've... House hacked and either bought a house, converted it from three bed to five bed and rented the rooms, um, out 2006. I still own those first two house hacks because I didn't know about the two year owner occupant tax benefit at that time. Probably was a good thing because I still own those two houses. They're about three or four years away from being fully paid off. Um, worth three, four hundred thousand a piece producing 2300 in rent each. Um, but the goal back then was to house, you know, and I hate saying like before house hacking was house hacking, but I was just needed a double mortgage. I, there was, that was it. I had to have a house that I could get, figure out a way to double my mortgage and live for free. That was it. So I just back into that. Um And then once I got out here in 08 happened and there was the, There was a big discrepancy and the market was shifting and I was learning the value add and I learned about the two year owner rock where you live in a house the last two or five years. And if you're single, you can take up 250,000 tax free. You're married up 500,000. So, um, I was like game changer. Now going back to the word opportunistic, I now found a new tool in my tool belt to allow myself to see more opportunistic opportunities that come my way. So after that, I started just finding the best deal I could find and live in it for the two years and add as much value as I could. And I started buying rentals with the plan of moving into that rental, you know, in after my next two year to live there two years, to be able to take that tax tax free. And I, I ran the numbers for a, a banker a few months back. And the value from my 100% tax free house hacking um, is a little over 1.9 million dollars Of tax free income that I've got through all of my house hacks.
2: Can you walk us through how that how that would be? What do you mean by tax free?
1: The first two I added the equity into those. So those wouldn't quite be a hundred percent tax free. But after that, I lived in a house two years and I sold it and I essentially found a property, a project that I can make two hundred and fifty thousand on and I lived there. For free and made 250. So I added up every house, what I bought it for, what I sold it for. And um, essentially I'm happy to even share that Excel sheet with people if they're interested in seeing true, true real world, 2006 to 2023, of uh, what the power of house hacking in all aspects, roommate renting and living there can, can do. Yes. I'm always preface it that I went through a a time period from 2010 to 2020 that we might not ever see that opportunity again. So I'm big believer in also sharing that, like, you know, I have a little over 30, 31 million of personal assets that I own just myself. And I have, I'm invested as a syndicator, a partner in another, you know, 30 plus million between apartments and, and different deals. So um I could, it would have been really difficult for me to get to that number Without a 2010 to 2020. And I just, I'm, I know I'm sidetracking a little bit, but in, and I'm, it's just so many people come out and share, share, their story. I have 30 million in real estate. My goal was $2 million of real estate by the time I was 35, 10 houses, um, that were worth 200, uh, a piece that I bought for mid hundreds added value. And I'd had 2 million that would replicate what the, that return of what my farm, what we'd lost. So to have 30 million is beyond my wildest dreams. Um, yes, I, I've worked harder than probably anyone out there and, and sacrificed, but also the timing played a big part in that. So that 30 million, whether it's 2 million, 20 million, 200 million, I'm not big into the numbers or the door count because I think um, that can that can skew people. Um, if that makes sense. So
0: No, that's wise. I say all the time, how much equity do you have in your portfolio and how much cash flow are you making? Those are the numbers that matter. Whether it's I mean, wouldn't you wouldn't each of you rather have one property that makes a whole bunch of money than seventy five doors scattered amongst all these different areas? that maybe make the same money but it's 12 times as much work. It's we often talk about the wrong metrics because it's the it's the title that people will click on. Oh, I want to learn how they got to 47 doors. And then you dig in deeper and it's like, "Oh, these are bad properties in rough areas and you don't even own all of them. You partnered with a bunch of other people on it. You didn't scale to 47 doors. You just created this headline that makes everyone feel bad about what they did versus someone like what you're describing here, Jason. You went through all these different asset classes You got experience in many different ways of making money with real estate. You figured out eventually where your strengths are. You sort of made this like a business, like a, a job in a sense of making money through real estate, not just this passive income dream that people have that frequently doesn't work out very well. You mentioned that you're, you're house hacking right now. What do you say to the people who think house hacking is beneath them? That's a beginner strategy and they want to go on to, to cooler and better things. You know, this is kind
1: of a, if anyone knows me, this is
0: so far from how like a real
1: statement, but um, let's go hop on my plane and, and fly over my recent house hack, you know, and you know, and in like, kind of like a jerky way of like, just responses like that house hacking has afforded me the, the life luxuries and the ability to give back and donate and, and travel the world and that quote financial freedom. Um, that I never could have had, you know, otherwise. And it, and I will keep doing house hacking almost probably to the day I die because it is such an impactful thing on myself. Now my wife, potential, you know, future family, whoever I donate all my wealth to or the building I put my name on, they will be impacted significantly because of house hacking and, um, and adding value. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in the value add, you know, versus, but hacking is just a much simpler word, you know, house hack, plane hack, hog hack, whatever it is, um,
2: and so you you're working on a on a house hack right now or are you in a house hack? Tell us about that deal.
1: Yeah, the the recent one, I I the last one I did was a brand new build duplex that I built in the heart of Denver right off Tennyson. Um bought the dirt for 515, built a duplex, luxury, you know, high-end, three-story rooftop, downtown views, you know, of that. Um and I was going to live in one and the other side was identical, just f- mirrored. So I was going to live in the first one for 2 years. Take my 250 plus thousand I'd have since I built it myself, live in the next one, do that. I got one of those out of there. Um, and then this winter I had the opportunity from a developer to buy a 2.8 acre parcel, um, in Northwest Denver that had, uh, and the zoning here allows me to subdivide that and, um, build on one acre parcel. So the plan now is a 1991 original house, um, purchased for two million bucks. The house itself is worth one four to one six. The lot's worth six to eight hundred. So in the process of subdividing the additional land down to one to 1.8 acres, I'm not sure how we'll divide it yet. And I'll either sell that and lower my basis or I will build over there sell my current house and then go live in a brand new build custom duplex mountain views and and the works um and house hack that for 2
2: years. And the numbers on that will work out to where are you going to completely subsidize your mortgage on that cuz that sounds like a premium property are you going to subsidize all of it or is it just meant to like get your overall monthly mortgage down as low as possible?
1: TBD up to this point I've never paid to live. I I've made money on every single since Graduating college, I've never had a house or a mortgage payment or utility. Um, all of that money has gone back into buying additional real estate that was, you know, income driven. Um, this one was, uh, I told my wife before we got married, um, we had three moves and I had those strategically planned. Um, and after that, she got to decide that was, you know, 40 and then she kind of, Helped make the decision, but up to that point, it was financially driven to allow us to have that, you know, quote financial freedom the rest of our life through these next moves. So the house that we have now is, is an in between TBD. What, um, it, it will financially make sense, but will I have, you know, will I hack it where I'm living for free? Um, TBD, you know, it's a $10,000 a month mortgage payment, um, that's not covered by the last duplex, the tenant next door. I rented it for 4400 a month and my mortgage payment was like 5 or 52 I think so they're almost paying for a you know most of it for a property that was valued at that time over 2 million and I was essentially living for 800 bucks a month um so TBD on this one but not to go into the, the the nuts and bolts of it um but it doesn't matter if it's your first house, your middle house, your move up home, your forever home, your vacation home if you're willing to pull up your bootstraps and figure it out and go out and hustle, um, there is a way, even in this market, a way to reach your goals.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, you talked about making real estate decisions that let you sleep at night. And I know part of that for you is about partnerships. Why is it that you haven't really partnered much or gone in on the syndication side of things early on?
1: Yeah, the syndication, I saw at the beginning, I saw the guys doing it. Um, back in, back when I was brokering commercial stuff, it was ticks tenant in common was a big thing. You can have a, an LLC with up to 36 owners and it's tax structured that way. So I got to see early twenties and the, you know, the, um, or when I was in my early twenties, that, that structure. And, um, I saw the downside in 08. When it happened, I had a gentleman that invested all of his retirement, um, from Hawaii, before the show, we were talking about, uh, you know, some stuff happening in Hawaii. He called me once a week crying, um, older gentleman, I'm guessing maybe seventies crying, asking if there was any movement on this office building because all the tenants had vacated. Um, and it was going into receivership and this tick was getting foreclosed on. And that was his life. He was guaranteed 7% from this syndication company and 08 hit and he was going to lose everything. And I was 20 early twenties and he was calling me up. Crying that this, you know, this syndication company had tick company had essentially lost everything. Um, and that, that as a farm kid, the 4 H, the heart, the hand, all that. My goal is to add value and help others. Um, it's not to get the fancy cars, the planes, all that. Um, and I just up to this point, I didn't feel confident enough, um, in myself to go fake it until you make it, raise money. Um, and, and get, have other people's money. And I I just couldn't, it wouldn't, I couldn't have slept well after seeing my dad lost the farm, having this gentleman call me once a week for six months crying. Um, I chose to do it on my own and I was stubborn. I just wanted to do it. I wanted to build a foundation that I could, no one could F with. So I just going to do it on my own. And now we're, you know, I'm raising capital for projects and doing partnerships and stuff. And essentially here on out anything I do, I'll have a partner in, um, uh, whether it's one of my, you know, additional real estate ventures, you know, property management company. And, um, we, that we have now is, you know, amazing partner. That's, that's amazing in it and runs the day to day. And same with my new builds with miles partner in that. Um, and on my farm, we have a, Lupat Land Co. It's a hunting farm, op- farming operation, in Southern Kansas. That's my best, one of my best friends growing up It's partners with me in, in that. So now that I have the confidence I'm partnering, we'll see whether or not I go, you know, all in on the syndication and, and you know, the open door Grant Cardone
0: type model. What are your thoughts on the rise in popularity with how many people that did not have your level of experience were starting funds, starting syndications, raising money from people, going out and buying real estate while the market was climbing, climbing, climbing. And now interest rates have increased very quickly and quite a bit over a short period of time. And we're starting to see some of those things getting exposed as bad deals. People are losing money there's w- more capital calls. Do you think that's just a part of the process that you're going to have this happen, or do you think, as someone listening to a podcast like this who hears about all these groups making money, that they should have a little bit of skepticism?
1: I tread lightly because that's one reason I've been torn on social media you know i i I was helped do you know bigger pockets first office lease with Josh Dorkin back in two thousand and fifteen so i I saw the podcast I saw the success you know, he's happening. I got to know him, you know, on a one-on-one basis. And I couldn't, because of my background, I have struggled really hard with the, all the groups raising money to fake it until you make it. That's their pitch. When you sign up for one of the courses, say, invest a thousand bucks and you have now you're an investor in a thousand doors. And I, I had anger and kind of bitterness towards all of that and that mentality and, and the rise of the success. Um, and that's not what people want to hear. You know, they don't want to, they, they want to hear the, the success and all the positivity and how you can make your Bentley and your plane. They don't want to hear about it. a, A guy crying because he lost everything. He doesn't want to hear about the lawsuits. Um, Bush development, I office with him my first development or my first project here in Denver in Cherry Creek, 2012. Um, and again, this, you know, going a little dark, but he's no longer with us. He, you know, this guy had tens of hundreds of millions. He had sold anyway. He went big and 2008 hit and he couldn't recover in 2012. Um, you know, he's, he's no longer around. I office with that guy, you know, so there was, I saw the darkness and people don't want to hear that. At all so that's going back to like this story I kind of got off on a little tangent because it is it means so much to me if you can hear it in my voice you can see it in my face like it 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 scares me but that's not what people want to hear so that's why I've taken a little hiatus for from you know adding value in social media and and producing content um because it does scare me and I
0: don't I don't know what to say to that because People don't want to hear that. Well, that's why we're asking it though, right? Like, cause this is a really big podcast. A lot of people listen to this and there's even people out there that will be featured in the bigger pockets world though, right? Blogs for them or they'll be active in the forums and you get this impression like, oh, you're a bigger pockets person. You're safe. But BP can't, can't look into every single one of their 2 million members that's out there. And it's very, very easy to just be like, oh, this is what I'm doing. And they, they make the videos and they show themselves in the fancy car and they portray the Image, But I think your avatar is much, much closer to what I see successful investors actually look like. They're usually not the Grant Cardone flashy, look at my plane, look at my car. They're not what you see on Instagram making an edited reel to raise money for something. They're boring. They're analytical. They look at what could go wrong. They're often driven, just like you are, Jason, and just like I am, by I don't want to go back to being poor. I don't want to go back to having to, you know, not have freedom in my life. Uh, they look for what could go wrong in a deal, and they're extra, extra careful. And it's and that doesn't sell on Instagram, like you said. Nobody's on TikTok following the boring person at all, and they don't want to. They even in conversations, they don't want to hear that.
1: About that gentleman you know crying to me they they want to hear that if you do what I do, you can get your 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 lambo um and that's just not who i am uh at, at all so i've I've struggled with that because there are some awesome people out there that are doing great things and raising capital and and expanding um and it's it's great, and that's where i I want to stay positive, and that's why I kind of like stayed behind the the scenes and um, and just kind of watch this bigger pockets versus doing their first, you know, helping with the first office lease, like could have jumped in and Hey, we promote this. I want to do this. And I just put my head down and that's kind of, what's, what's kind of unique about this kind of surreal. Now it's, you know, this eight years later from negotiating, you know, May of, of, uh, 2015 and, and here I am, I am and I'm kind of back in that. So, um, I'm rambling a little bit guys. Cause I hope, I hope you sense that like just it means something
0: it's an awkward conversation cuz you don't want to throw everybody under the bus but at the same time it is true when i think of all the multimillionaires i know in real estate they're not people that want attention on themselves they're really boring like uh sorry give me brian murray who wrote the um crushing it in commercial real estate i believe it is Brian, love you. Really nice guy. Not the most exciting dude. He's a bit of a brand muffin. And that's why he's the person that you probably want underwriting your deal. And he's probably going to be extra careful. So just everyone listening to this, you heard it here. Doesn't mean if someone's flashy, you shouldn't invest with them. I would just be extra cautious. I'd look into it deep. Don't underestimate the power of a really boring polo and New Balance tennis shoes when you're looking to find the partner that you want to get into in real estate.
1: Day, I, I have to say that, uh, if, you know, one of my, partners, uh, in, in our property management company, he literally gives me hard time. I wear new balances and they're blue and they're blue. So he's like, dude, you literally are just coloring the fact that you are wearing white old man, new balances. I'm like, they're blue, they're hip, they're cool. And it's got a little like orange in the new balance. He goes, no, though. That's your, your, that's just accept it, man. So
0: this could not have worked out better. That's perfect. They're comfortable, guys. They're comfortable. They're, you know, they're, they're easy, you know. So there you go. Now, Jason, I understand you keep your properties relatively under leverage. You're at about 56% leverage. What's your philosophy behind that? I don't want to lose a farm, man. You know, um, the fact that I even
1: said in in front of people that, you know, I bought a $2 million home and I have a $9,850 month mortgage payment. It's, it, it's against everything the farmer mentality is. You, you don't, you drive a, the more rough the truck is, the more probably wealthier the farmer is because, you know, that's just, they don't care. And my leverage is just making sure that I don't lose it. So like hearing the number that I have a two million house and a 10,000 makes me anxious. It makes me sweat. I know I can, it it will ultimately make me money. But the fact that, you know, that's just not where I'm, I come from. So I knew the guys during the 2010 to 2020 era were hundred, 120% leverage. They were borrowing for the house. They're borrowing for the down payment and they were borrowing for the fix up and they were scaling, um, you know, And I bought my first house 3852 next to a guy that was doing that, bought it out of foreclosure, borrowed a hundred percent of everything. Plus he had overhead for his staff. So he was over a hundred percent leveraged. He is financially very wealthy at this point, but I just wasn't willing to take that risk and lose it all because of the bootstrap. I just wanted to get a little better than I was the next day. And 80, 90, a hundred percent, you know, scares me. But again, I, I'm not saying that's wrong, and that's where I I want to you know I'm not saying to not invest in syndication. I'm not to trust people to not leverage a hundred. If if in this market you, there's a the right opportunity, go for it. It was just my background, and I knew who I was and how real estate would affect me negatively. Essentially, if that went wrong, it would affect me more. Negatively than if it went
0: well, that it would affect me positively. The risk reward ratio didn't make sense to go big. Now, in the beginning of your career, it may make more sense to be a little riskier because you got less to lose, right? And you can kind of make up for mistakes with just grit, hustle, pouring yourself into it. But once you've got a, a bigger empire, so to speak, if you take your eye off the ball and it's super, super leveraged and you're looking over here and that thing starts to topple and there's no way you can get out from under it, that's a very different scenario than when this is the only thing you're doing. And that's what happened to my dad. You know, he if he could have would have kept
1: doing single family homes, keeping cattle, running them on our pasture, staying lean, you know, but he he went big and it it bit him. And he had he had, you know, a, he had a lot to lose. So um, and but again, Grant Cardone went all in and here he is today, you know, so it's it's you choose who you want to be, and what at the end of the day, um, what will make you happy, and things like that. You know, so
2: Yeah, I mean, we've already covered a lot of this, but I do want to move on to the ugly or the ugly truth, if you will. Your no BS advice for investors. So really quickly, can you run us through three things investors listening to should do that no one else is going to tell them?
1: Yeah, so the first is... Good old Craigslist, white pages, sending letters, the bare bone basics. Some unique ones that I get some leads on is I talk to cleaners and I go to open checkout um, garage sales and literally stop by garage sales. And and because if I see all their stuff out there selling and they're there, you literally get to talk to the person that's selling everything.
2: Yeah, trying to clean house, right?
1: Literally clean house. And that's what they say when you make a bunch of money. Man, I cleaned house on that deal. So... Rob, like literally, like they are cleaning house. And if you add value and help their life by saying, I'll buy the house, you know, as is, if I'm a broker, I want to help broker it, um, then then you can get that deal. And a lot of times stuff like that. And then uh, you know, asking cleaners that are cleaning, hey, do you have any insight? I bought deals from them. I I've talked to every UPS FedEx. Delivery driver, I meet. I'll give them my information. I'll tell them I'll give them a bonus if they ever come across inside as someone wanting to sell or move because they're literally delivering packages to these people daily. So, got some deals through that. So, um, again, all this is not scalable.
2: With the cleaners, is it like, are you telling them, hey, if you have any clients that have talked about cleaning in your presence, let me know and I'll hit them up kind of thing?
1: Yeah, it's literally cleaners are, they're coming, the houses are, um, They're dirty. They know what's happening. They have health situation. Most people will try and get, um, lawyers and probate and all of that because they hear when family shifts and health is happening. But a lot of times cleaners, um, are being sent in because it needs the family member is older and it needs cleaned or they're moving or they're selling. It's just inside literally. It's just they are literally in the house. That's my whole goal is just finding value add. Information, opportunistic information, and a cleaner literally is in that person's house, just as a FedEx driver is, as the UPS coming to the front door. They're meeting those people.
2: And uh, what is your last tip for our listeners at home?
1: Man, stress test before you do anything. I know a lot of people say go all in and stuff, but at least what works for me is I'll stress test a little bit. You know, I'll go and door knock, or I'll call, or I'll deal with some tenant issues or I'll, I'll help go renovate a friend's house or something to like see, okay, am I actually going to, do I enjoy fix and flipping? Do I enjoy picking out uh, colors and, and, and stuff like before you go buy a fix and flip, just find someone that a friend that needs some renovation and help them figure out if you find a passion for that. But so many people buy a fix and flip and they'll realize, Oh my God, this is, I hate this. This is terrible. This house is disgusting, and I don't like this. I I want to be a broker. I want a flashiness. So then they'll switch to brokering. So stress test before you jump in, and there's always a way to stress test almost everything.
0: That's awesome. I mean, I'd give, I'd second that advice to anyone who wants to get into real estate investing. It's so common that people don't want to do anything unless they get paid. But just get in there and figure out if you like it. Quit worrying about getting paid per hour. Try to figure out if this is something you're good at, you enjoy. You're going to make a lot more money in the future because you took that path. So if you think you might want to be in property management, ask a friend who's managing their own properties if you can help with what they're doing. Find another person and say, let me manage the cleaners for you and see if that's a thing you enjoy doing or if you absolutely hate it. There's lots of jobs in the real estate space that people could get into that are better than the job they have now. They don't have to just try to live off the cash flow, And I'm frequently encouraging people to jump in and see if they like something. So I think that's a really good advice. I also like your idea of playing defensively. I I, re- I refer to this as building a financial fortress. It's not always about scaling and getting bigger and bragging at the next meetup you go to because of how many doors you have. It's often about building something that you're not gonna lose, that, that over, time is going to be a solid investment that's going to take care of your future. And like you saw with your dad, when you grow too big, you can absolutely lose money. So I think that this is great advice. Rob, anything you want to add?
2: No, I actually really like the cleaning one. I, the garage sale one I can speak to. I went to an estate sale and um I, w- I, I was leaving and I saw someone behind the desk by the door. And I was like, hey, by any chance, are you the owner? And she was like, well, yes, I am. And I'm like, would you be? Are you looking to sell the property? What do you want to do with it? And I mean, I was a little bit more tactful than that, but she was basically was like, Yes, I am. And I was like, Would you be interested in selling it off market? Like, I'd love to buy it from you. I live in this neighborhood. And she was like, Yeah, I would totally be interested in that. So I got her information. Um, I called her. It didn't work out. It's all good, though. It just gave me the idea, though, that when you can meet someone face to face in the moment when they were trying to offload a property, it can actually make closing that deal a lot easier. That was just one scenario for me, but I knew from that moment, if I went to a hundred garage sales, the likelihood of me meeting all those owners and closing a sale or a deal or two from that, probably pretty high. Hundred 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 percent. If you went to a garage sale, Estate sale, I'm a big fan of the garage
1: sale and finding the older because they estate sale, they're already in action. They're probably already got a broker. They're already selling the house. It's already sold and they're needing to liquidate everything and within two weeks. So I'm a big fan of the garage sale. But if you did that 100, you would get something. You send a 100 letters, you'll get a response. I like the basics. I'm a huge fan.
2: Yeah, it's a numbers game. You just have to be willing to-
1: To do it. Bootstrap. Very beginning, we talked about it. Bootstraps. Pull them up. Boom. Full full circle.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Jason. This has been really good information. And thank you for sharing your story from uh, 4H Stud to real estate investing connoisseur who's got all kinds of different assets and all kinds of different places. Where can people find out more about you if they want to follow up?
1: Yeah, kind of, it's, it's, I'm going into the, the, my journey at this point and I'm wanting to help people and get, get the message out there and just add value. So I've kind of doubled down and, and everything I have is journey with JLU, um, JLEW. So journey with JLU on any social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, whatever. And you won't see a ton of activity, uh, here in the past. Um, but hopefully we'll get that going. And also I have the creative real estate podcast, um, was, um, one we've, done there in the
0: past that we're getting going again. Nice. Rob, where can people find out about you? Uh,
2: You can find me on Instagram and YouTube at Rob Built. YouTube is where I post my long form content that teaches you how to do the real estate thing. And then the short form, goofy real estate content is all on
0: Instagram, baby. What about you? You can find me at davidgreen24.com or davidgreen24 at your favorite social media. Thank you, Jason. It was great meeting you and getting to hear about your life. And thank you for your transparency about New Balance Shoes. It's tough to go on a podcast that gets 300,000 downloads. and Very vulnerable, for sure. Yes, very much so. But we appreciate your transparency. New Balance and mullet wigs. Love them. We'll we'll let you get out of here, Jason. This is David Green for Rob. All day I dream about sales of a solo. Signing out.